Kevin Starcher. That McGregor changeup that you've seen so much of tonight. It will, right field. Singleton to the wall, and this ball is good. Willie Stargio, the big man. Seven times he had come to the plate in this series with runners in scoring position and failed. But suddenly, and we said this would be a testing inning for the young southpaw, suddenly with one swing in the race in the wake of Robinson's bad hop single, turns it around for the moment. Now the Pirates, they're a happy bunch. As they greet the old pro, Willie Stargell. And in the seventh game, with the chips on the line, Stargell is three for three as you look at the Pittsburgh cheering section that has come in from the Steel City. And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down. The fastball swung on and hit the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and it is. Get out the right bread and the mustard this time, Grandma. It is a grand salami. And the Mariners lead it 10-6. to six. I don't believe it. I, oh my. From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. Once again, back is the incredible, the incomparable Backwards K Pod. From the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. And who am I, you ask? It's Jake the Snake Robinson, bitch. Recognize. Half man, half podcast machine. I'm coming out of beautiful Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki. Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Want to welcome my beautiful CMED audience in some uh, same bat time, same bat channel. Backwards K Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can find the show at my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. If you're an Apple or a Spotify user, please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't skirt. I come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. I will never charge you heads for the content. No crowdsourcing, no Patreon. All I ask is that you share, subscribe, follow, and download. Some rate and review comments. And uh, this will keep me in the line of doing what I love doing more than anything in the world. And that's Talk Baseball. I'm not going to spend too much time promoting this week. You can email the show at backwardskpod at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook uh, at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Or on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. I'm all tackled up in the web, brah, pretty much on all platforms, so yeah, come on and get some. Now, the show has taken on some crazy twists in just the last couple weeks. There's been bonus shows, topical shows, interviews, as I'm enjoying the evolutionary process of Backwards K-Pod going uh, on seven months now. Uh, Today, that process continues 
to mutate as I have a co-host today here at the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex for the first time in BKP history. This is a guy I met around 11 years ago at a Hooters and out to Pennsylvania. And, okay, so the story goes like this. I cooked in a restaurant in Altoona with his sister, the cooks. We all talked about, you know, sports all day in the kitchen. A little bit of Penguins hockey, a lot of NFL and college football, but mostly baseball in this kitchen specifically. And his sister comes up to me and says, you and my brother Mike, you guys should meet. He He's always talking about sports like you. And so she sets up a date for us to meet. And I've always wondered when I walked into Hooters that night wearing a Ravens hoodie and a Ravens hat, was that the moment that you fell head over heels in love with me? Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Franks, answer that question, please. Was that the moment you fell in love with me? I don't know if I fell in love with you, Jake, but as soon as I saw the Ravens stuff, I, I thought this might be a long night. <laughs> Being me as a Steelers fan. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a special night though. It definitely was a special night. Yeah, little did I know, eleven years later, we'd still be doing this. You're in South Carolina, me living in Pennsylvania, but we're talk we talk almost every day. Yeah, and and it's a great thing, man. You came down to the Robson Gearing Studio Complex, and I invite all of you in the audience. You always got a friend at the beach. I live right on the beach. You can always come down if you want to do a show with me. Come on down, and we'll do a show together. And today we got Mikey Franks. Now, Mikey, I know you're a Pirates fan. It's been it's been a tough life for you. I mean, really, you weren't even born. I mean, you were born right when this story, what we're going to do today, is uh, was going down, correct? Yeah, I was born uh, middle of August. And, uh, of course, Pirates were making that run, uh, battling that with the Expos. Uh, trying to take the division, but you know, I was a month and a half old when the, when right. the playoffs started. So Right, and your dad was really into it. I, we were going to try to get your dad on here, but, you know, he's on vacation, and, you know, he's in his 60s. He's got to wake up in the morning and entertain his folks or whatever, so we couldn't get that going. But, you know, uh, I'm sure that this was a great moment for your dad. Your dad was probably holding your, you know, <laughs> holding you in his yeah. arms while he's watching them <laughs> whoop up on my Orioles. So uh, I'm going to take you through the story of the 1979 We Are Family Pirates. And I'm thrilled to have you in with me this week. And this was probably the worst week of my childhood. <laughs> and from what I hear, it's probably the best time of your father's life, life as a... Uh, we adjust this timeline here. Your, your mom is pregnant with you, that she has you, and you're literally a month and a half, correct? A month and a half old, yeah. And your dad's beloved Buckos beat the Orioles down twice in eight years in the World Series. So this is truly a tale of two cities. And I know you're going to probably agree with a lot of the stuff that I say here in the beginning here. Uh, these are two cities that have always kind of mirrored each other. In so many ways that they naturally have like this rivalry gene that we share between Baltimore and Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And during this time, the 70s, the Steelers were winning four Super Bowl crowns. And the Baltimore Colts were very good, but they just couldn't get past the Raiders and then the Steelers in the playoffs. I think one time they played the Raiders in, in the uh, NFL championship game and or AFC championship game. And one time they played the Steelers. Both times we came up short. And... I mentioned the two times that the Pirates beat the Orioles both times, coming back from amazing odds to do so. And even today, with the intensity of the heat that comes off of that uh, current Ravens-Steelers rivalry in the NFL, these two cities are almost destined to be rivals. And honestly, it is my hope that one day, through radical realignment, the Orioles and the Pittsburgh Pirates will be in the same division, and they can take this rivalry into baseball. 
Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, I, I think uh, seeing how the Ravens and the Steelers are, are always at each other's throats, Orioles and the Pirates would, would naturally just be a great rivalry. I agree, especially if, like, you know, like the American League uh, Southeast conferences up for grabs. You know what I mean? Like, I certainly do. You could also throw Washington in there, Philly. Have, like, this whole MEAC kind of division there. Yeah. I think it would be great. But I digress. And to be fair, the 79 Orioles team was fantastic. Probably the greatest Orioles team I ever saw in my 50 years of watching that team. As I was a generation removed from the Brooks, Robinson, Frank Robinson heyday with Boog Powell and others. And one day... I assume it will be on the history of the Orioles show, but I will talk more about that 79 team. But this week is about the world champion Pirates of 1979. Now, at the start of that audacious season, the Pirates were flat out awful. Hmm. They started the season losing 10 of their first 14 games, and they had committed 23 errors in those 24 games. They were in last place at the end of April, while the Phillies and Expos sat at top of the NLEs. And your dad pretty much gave you the same kind of backstory, right? In fact, right. he said in 78, uh, they were playing really, really well, right? Correct. So, 79... Uh, they got expectations here, but they come out and they're not playing very good in the first 14 games. And the Pirates aggressively made three moves in the first quarter of that season that paid off in spades uh, for Pittsburgh that year. The first move they made was trading shortstop Frank Tavares to the Mets for shortstop Tim Foley. And... Foley was like this guy after touring for 10 years with pedestrian numbers while playing for the lowly Expos and Mets. And he became like this motivated Foley when he came to the Steel City and he staked his claim at shortstop. He was a hard-nosed, blue-collar vet that made himself right at home at Three Rivers. In his first month with the team, he batted 341 with 14 RBIs and he set the tone. On June 28th, the Buccos pulled off a baseball coup when they traded Ed Whitson, Al Holland, Fred Redding for Lenny Randall, Dave Roberts, and the prize of the group, Mad Dog Bill Madlock. Has your dad ever talked about Mad Dog Bill Madlock? Yeah, I mean, he was he was actually one of uh, my dad's favorite players, but uh, that was a huge pickup. Huge pickup. I mean, uh, the Mad Dog... He was the winner of two batting titles while he was with the Cubs in 1975-1976. I uh, went on to play in San Francisco. He's miserable there. The Giants had taken him from his natural position at third base, and they had moved him to second base. He never quite felt comfortable with that position change, and in his mind, it was affecting his batting prowess. Now, once the Mad Dog was brought to Pittsburgh, he played like the Mad Dog of old, as he was a gold glove caliber player at third base, and boy, oh boy, could Madlock hit. And I'm going to be honest with you, as an Oriole fan, that dude, scary as fuck. And we'll get into much more of him, of course. But look, in the 85 games that he appeared in for Pittsburgh in 1979, not including the postseason where he pretty much made every pitcher his bitch, Madlock batted 328-394-69. He had an OPS of 860 and a 130 OPS+. plus. Now, the third move was not a trade they made in 79, but a move they made in March of 77 when they traded for old scrap iron Phil Garner. As a middle infielder for the A's, he was like this mediocre talent at best, still trying to find his game. But in 1979, it all came together, and he was moved from third in favor of Matlock to his more desirable position at second base. And Garner becomes like this leader on that slick fielding infield unit that year. 
Now, as the calendar flips from May to June, the Buckles are playing better. But they find themselves in an unremarkable fourth place. Uh, sure, the current five-game winning streak has put that record at two games over, 23 and 21. But as recently as May 20th, they were under 500 and had been as many as nine games behind the Montreal Expos. With the San Diego Padres coming to town, a natural phenomenon was born on June 1st, 1979. And it set the course for one of the most amazing world championship runs in baseball history. In front of 12,928 fans on a Friday night at Three Rivers Stadium, uh, that saw that first pitch delayed 39 minutes due to a rain delay, the now-streaking Buckos began to spill seeds that this season was something special. And I'm sure your dad remembers this game very well. After a quiet first inning, all hell breaks loose at the top of the second when the Padres rally after two outs to load the bases. After Dale Barra era, Dale Barra era, Era. That's a, that's, that's a yeah, mouthful. Twister. A Randy Jones single and a Gene Richards walk. Hall of Famer Ozzie Smith breaks the game over with a single driving in two unearned runs, compounded, compounded by the Dave Parker error. 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 Dave Parker's error on Smith's hit out in right field, and that allowed a third unearned run to score. Padres pitcher Randy Jones, enjoying the early 3-0 advantage, retires the first two batters before he finds himself in trouble with two outs. When Phil Gardner rips a triple to center field, and with catcher Steve Nicosia driving him in with a double. At the end of one, the Friars are up 3-1. The third inning was quiet for San Diego, but the Buccos bring some noise when NL speedster Omar Moreno singles, steals second, scores on a Tim Foley single to left, cutting the Padres' lead. To three to two. How's it feel hearing all these names? Well, you just said two two of the names they picked up in trades. Yeah, right. Making a difference in making an impact. Darn fully. That's right. Uh, And And Madlock's not there yet. Yeah, yeah. We haven't brought Madlock. That's right. So yeah, I mean these trades are already paying dividends in this one game. Absolutely. In the bottom of the fourth, an error by outfielder Dave Winfield allowed Gardner to score to even the game at three. In the fifth. Winfield drops Dong to put San Diego up 4-3. But Pittsburgh would quickly retake the lead in the bottom half when Moreno walks, stole second again, and scored on a fully base knock to center again. Padres manager Roger Craig he goes to the bully. He brings in Dennis Kinney over Jones. Two batters later, Bill Robinson smokes a double, scoring fully, and the Pirates now have a 5-4 lead. And the top of the sixth, Pirate skipper Chuck Tanner. He goes to his bully. He replaces starter Ed Whitson with Enrique Romo. And with one out and a runner on base, Broderick Perkins of the Friars gets a single together, sending, uh, gets a single, sending pitch runner Bill Almon to first, to third, I'm sorry, and Gene Richards would drive in Almon, tying the score at fives. The Buccos again go to the bully. In the top of the sixth, and Tanner grabs Kent to Colby, and he promptly gave up another Winfield blast, and the Padres now hold the lead at 6-5. to five. San Diego would pad that lead in the eighth, when Ozzie Smith scored uh, from first base on a Jerry Turner two-out double. Turner then scored on a Kurt fucking Pavacqua single <laughs> to center field, as Tommy Lasorda would lovingly say about him. With an 8-5 to five deficit and only three outs to work with, the Pirates looked destined to fall short in the ballgame. And it was during that inning when the song, We Are Family, 
blared over the Three Rivers PA. And the intensity to win hit another level. The fans were rocking, and the team was confident. Team leader, Hall of Famer, and one of the greatest human beings to ever play baseball, Willie Pop Stargell. He's sitting next to Dave Parker, and he says, Park, you like this song? And Parker replies back, yes, I do. It's not as good as Ain't No Stopping Us Now, but, but it's fine. And Stargell looks at him, and he says, this is our team song from now on. And when telling the story, Parker always smiles that million-dollar smile of his, and he says, I want it ain't no stopping us now, but whatever Willie wants, Willie gets. <laughs> the song was sung by Sister Sledge. It was basically about leaning on one another for help. It had a catchy disco beat and a big chorus, and Pops was a fan. Uh, back to the game. 8-5 Padres, bottom of the ninth. John Milner pinch hits, leads off the inning with a fly out to center field. Then both Moreno and Foley, I mean, they're just killing it in this game. They singled, bringing Parker to the dish. And the Cobra, who had heard a smattering of booze after his error in the second inning and after striking out in the fifth, he gets the Three Rivers crowd back on board with a three-run dong over the center field wall. Afterwards, uh, Robinson popped out. San Diego went to the bully for Bob Shirley to face Stargell, who singled to center. Then the Friars went after their star reliever, Raleigh Fingers. And Garner hit a double to left off Fingers for his fourth hit of the game, pushing Pops to third. Ed Ott was intentionally walked to get to Barra, who had a 195 lifetime average off of Fingers. So Bucko's manager, Chuck Tanner, counters with pinch hitter Lee Lacey. Fingers got two strikes on Lacey before missing four straight balls and forcing Willie Stargell home with the winning run, giving Pittsburgh the 9-8 to win, all off a walk-off walk victory. The come-from-behind win was just one of 25 Pirates' comeback victories that year. After the game, Willie Stargell celebrated by singing We Are Family by Sister Sledge, and the team gravitated toward the whole gimmick, and sure enough, the family was seen stenciled on the, the dugout roof, T-shirts, posters, and even street signs in the Pittsburgh era, area <laughs> now were, you know, saying, we are family. The song was played routinely multiple times at Three Rivers during games. Pirates' wives would jump in on the act and disco dance their bucko passion out on top of that dugout roof during the seventh inning stretch. And Kathleen Sledge said, it seemed like a miracle. They were touring in West Germany when they began to hear the craze going on in Pittsburgh over their song. And they just figured this song made as much noise as it ever would. But yet, here was a sports anthem in the Berg. And after the Buckos adopted the song and the album and the single, it sold over a million copies. And it finished as the number two pop song on the Billboard charts for 1979. As Phil Garner has said, we had guys from Panama, black players from the hood, white players from the hood. We had all kinds of uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, and Willie Stardell's presence and leadership had held it all together. And he could leave with a pat on the back or a foot up the ass. And one of the greatest Stardell stories is when he walks up to reliever Ken Colby in a World Series game and says, if you want to go play first, I'll pitch if that's the way you're going to throw the fucking ball tonight. He always knew the right buttons to push. From that comeback victory on June 1st and into the fall, uh, into the fall victory parade, Sister Sledge was probably heard whenever you saw the 1979 Pirates. And the team was genuinely living their soundtrack, 
soundtrack's motto. Rennie Stennett, Pirates utility player, said, if the Pirates lost two games in a row that year, they would use that as an excuse to have a party. Everyone would, would throw in 20 bucks in the pot. We'd rent a suit, uh, a suite, and we'd have a few drinks and talk about why we weren't winning. And it never failed. We'd go out and we'd win the next game. Willie, who played first base, began giving out these uh, Stargell Stars. They were golden stars. He would award players for great plays and contributions to the team's success. Every time you received a star, it would be sewn onto your Pirates cap. And within seconds, you could see guys who had made a great impact on the team during the season just by how many stars they had. On July 2nd, Mad Dog Madlock, he made his Buckos debut with the team, holding firm at four games under 500. And from that game on, the Pirates won better than two out of three, two out of every three for the rest of the season. Words cannot do justice about the impact that Bill Madlock had on that team as he was motivated by not playing second base anymore. By All-Star Eve, Pittsburgh is a mere four games out of first, behind only the Expos and Filthy. By now, the We Are Family phenomenon is beginning to carry nationally. The baseball universe has begun to notice this tight-knit crew in the Berg playing ball, loving and believing in one another, dancing to disco tunes with their garish 70s gear and colorful hats and blazing with those startled stars all over them. If anyone in the baseball universe didn't have the Pirates on their radar yet, all that changed with the 1979 All-Star Game at the Seattle Mariners' Kingdom. Dave Parker balled out, and he took MVP honors with two amazing defensive plays in right field. The first play that many people forget was a pop-up flare out to right by Red Sox slugger Jim Rice. Parker loses the ball in the white roof and blinding lights in a stadium he's never played in before. And the last 20 or so feet of that ball's descent, Parker realizes the ball is over his head, and he quickly retreats. He grabs the ball on one hop, over his shoulder, spins, and fires a seed from the right field foul line bullpen area to Rod Say at third base to catch Rice by a step and a half. The second more memorable play, but only because of its importance, as the AL was threatening to blow the game open, Greg Nettles hits a line drive in the right field that Parker, uh, that he gets on Parker pretty quickly. The Cobra fields the ball on a perfect hop, and he sees that Angels catches Brian Dowdy, wants to test his gun. Big mistake. Parker lets loose a perfect one-bounce missile to Expos catcher Gary Carter, who is perfectly blocking off the dish, and he hits Dowdy with the glove and ball in the chest for the out. Still, Two of the greatest outfield assists that you'll ever see in All-Star Game history. So good, in fact, that the Cobra Dave Parker would win the 1979 All-Star Game MVP and the 7th sick victory over the American League. Do you remember anything about Dave Parker? Uh, I, I, Dave Parker was not remembered as much. It's because of Willie Stargell, but Dave Parker was an animal in he right field. He was, man. He was amazing in right field, and he was a huge he part was, of the Pirates team. He was absolutely, well, he was a four-tool player. He, he didn't was. have blazing speed, right. but other than that, he could hit for average, he could hit for power, and honestly, I mean, he was one of the best players in the game at that time. He was, and it was a huge loss when he left the Pirates, and of course, uh, if you don't know that story, it was a, right. bad, it was a bad breakup. 
Yeah, it was. It was you know, part of that uh, drug trials in 1985. Uh, if you don't know much about that story, I have that story in my archives. You can always go back and check that out at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. And look, if you've never seen those plays, you should be Googling that up in your Google machines like ASAP. Going into August, the Phillies and Pirates would meet nine times in 11 days. Neither one of these teams could risk being blasted out of series. Unfortunately for the Phillies, the Buccos threw all their cannonballs at them and demolished any chance Filthy had in catching the NLE's pennant. Um, And the Pirates wound up taking eight out of those nine games. This was the beginning of the end of the Phillies for the the division. Pretty much. With the uh, Sister Sledge anthem playing louder and louder. And the Pirates team feeding off the emotion of the fans and the uh, environment. They would eventually sink the Expos as well and earn the pennant. Down the stretch, pitcher uh, Jim Bibby. He was a rock. Dominating in two storage with uh, 16 innings pitched, he giving up only a nine hits and one earned run for two big wins for the Buccos. Omar Moreno, leadoff catalyst speedster, he had two home runs with 10 runs, four stolen bases. Uh, that was added to his league-leading 77. Bullpen arm Enrique Romo was warming up going into the postseason. And he was great all year. But he was on a whole other level now that he uh, picked up those three wins in that filthy series. And he allowed zero runs in six appearances against Philadelphia. Dave Parker was money. I mean, Dave Parker was always money. I've said it before on Backwards K-Pod. Dave Parker was a Hall of Fame player. I know he had some off-the-field things that you know me and Mike just kind of alluded to. But let's be honest. He was a beast on the diamond without question. During the nine-game series versus the Phils, Parker smashed three home runs, nine RBIs, and scored 11 runs. Manager Chuck Tanner was also showing that he had a few tricks up his sleeve as well. Uh, he pinch hits John Milner for catcher Steve Nicosia, who was already 4 for 4 in the game. And the veteran Milner would reward his manager mm-hmm. with a walk-off grand slam. The team was united and focused as they swept through the NOS champion Cincinnati Reds and route to a World Series matchup with the American League champion Baltimore Orioles. The 98-win Pirates team, that was the most wins for the Pirates in over 70 years. Uh, They were taking on the 102-win Orioles team that had overthrown the defending world champion New York Yankees for the AL East crown, and they beat up on the Halos in the ALCS three games to one. The the original scheduled Game 1 was rained out. So, Game 1 was officially began the next night at Memorial Stadium with Brooks Robinson throwing out the first pitch. Buccos pitcher Bruce Keeson, who was a rookie on the 1971 Pirates team that beat Baltimore, he took the hill for Pittsburgh versus baseball's winningest pitcher that year, the crafty Southpaw Mike Flanagan, who had 23 dubs under his belt. On a wet, soggy field on a blustery, cold Baltimore October night, the Orioles ambushed the Pirates in the first inning, loading the bases. Al Bumby on third, Doug DeSensei at second, Eddie Murray on first. Next batter, John Lowenstein, rolls over on a pitch, and he hits a routine double play ground in a second baseman, Phil Garner, who inexplicably throws the ball in the left field, skipping through water puddles as Bumry and DeSensei score to put the birds on top 2 to nothing in the bottom half of the first. Next pitch to Rich Dowers, a wild pitch. Murray scores 3 nothing Oreos. 
The Orioles would bat around, and third baseman Doug DeSensei, two-run blast to left, gives the Orioles a 5 nothing lead in the first, and it set a record for the most runs in the first inning of the World Series at the time. And, side note here, uh, eight-year-old Jake the Snake literally mm-hmm. has a boner watching all of this unfold on his TV. I-, I don't even know that I knew what a boner was yet, but at that moment, I knew that there was something going on down there, and I also knew, we're going to crush these fucking guys. Unfortunately for me, I had no concept of what a really good bully could mean to a team. I was raised more in, eh, you just let Flanny, Scotty, and Jim Palmer pitch nine and we're good. But 1979 was the year I got a first-hand education and bullpen excellence watching the Buckos in that postseason. Chuck Tanner pulls Keeson after his disastrous first, and he maneuvers his way through the game with his bully arms of Jim Rooker, Enrique Romo, and Don Robinson to keep the O's bats quiet after that crazy start. The Buckos' offense, on the other hand, continued to fight on after that crazy first inning. Pops would uh, drop Dong, but Mike Flanagan kept his poise and pitched a complete game and the 5-4 victory for Baltimore. Game two at Memorial Stadium features Don Robinson versus Jim Palmer. And this time, the Bucks would come out swinging as Bill Modlock singles and he scores pop. And a sack fly later, the Pirates are on top 2 to nothing in the first. Orioles first baseman Eddie Murray hammers a home run off of Robinson deep into the ink black Baltimore sky and right field bleachers of the world's largest outdoor insane asylum. That shot would cut the lead in half. His double in the sixth would tie the game. And while the game was not delivering a lot of runs, there were some fine, outstanding defensive moments by both teams that prevented the lead from swinging one way or the other. Uh, The Cobra, Dave Parker, he reminded the baseball universe of his all-star gun when he shoots down Eddie Murray at the plate in the seventh, trying to score the go-ahead run. And the top of the ninth, deadlocked at two. Pirates on first and second. Manager Chuck Tanner goes all in with pitch hitter Manny Sanguian, another Pirate from the 1971 World Championship team. Sanguian hits a Don Stanhouse fastball in a right field, and Ed, Scott, Ed Ott would uh, score just ahead of Eddie Murray's cut four le- relay from Kenny Singleton in right field. The Pirates, uh, they would hold on to that 3-2 advantage when the human scarecrow Kent Tacoli came in. Demolished the birds in the ninth, striking out Rick Dempsey and Kiko Garcia before inducing Dower into a ground out. And side note, that boner I had in game one, yeah, it's gone. <laughs> and this to call me guy, he terrifies the eight-year-old me. Game three. And I've met Takavi. He's a great dude. Have you ever met him at I've the never, stadium? I've never got a chance to meet him. You've he's, seen him, though, at the oh stadium, my right? God, yeah. All the time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. You know, I was telling him about the Sunday Night Series, and he said, Jake, I was just doing my job. <laughs> <laughs> he's a great guy, man. But when I was eight years old, that dude scared the bejesus out of me. Game three heads out to Pittsburgh, where Three Rivers Stadium is rocking. The disco hits. Ain't no stopping us now. We are family. And the electricity, you know, you can cut it with a knife. It gets even louder as the Bucks again striking the first when the Cobra drives in Moreno with a single. Garner would add two ribs in a second with a double, giving Pittsburgh 
the 3 nothing advantage. In the third, Baltimore retaliates when Benny Ayala drops Dong on John Candelaria's lips for two runs, cutting the lead to 3-2. to two. And after a short rain delay in the fourth, the Birds load the bases up. Shortstop Kiko Garcia clears the bases with a triple. Singleton would drive in Kiko with a base hit. And routes to an 8-4 to four domination by the Orioles behind the arm of Scotty McGregor and his 97-pitch complete game. By Game 4, the O's are feeling a little bit better about themselves with a 2-1 series lead, but the swashbuckling Bucks and their faithful fans are still confident and ready for the fight. In the second, Pop shows Orioles right-hander Dennis Martinez his prodigious power by blasting a home run over Bomber in the center field wall at Three Rivers, to take a one nothing lead. Still in their half of the second, John Milner hits a single, Ed Ott and Mad Dog. Uh, they hit ground rule doubles, and now the Bucks hold a 4 nothing lead. Eventually, as the game moves on, Baltimore cuts the lead in half to 4-2, to and the game becomes this uh, game inside the game. It's Earl Weaver and Chuck Tanner. They begin to match wits with one another from their respective dugouts. In the eighth inning, with the Bucks up 6-3, to and with the, boat, uh, the bases drunk on birds, Weaver deploys his best two left-handed bats he's been holding back all day, all day. So, Tanner, in anticipation of these moves, he goes to Kent to Colby, his best arm in the bully, his closer, who has been pretty much locked down on lefties and righties all year with that unorthodox sidearm delivery. Almost submarine-like. Yeah, it really was. I mean, like, I'd never seen nothing like it until that point. You know, I'm an eight-year-old kid. It's the first time I ever saw anybody (laughs) throw the ball like that. Pinch hitter, left-handed bat John Lowenstein, rips a double in the left. Plating two birds and bringing the score to 6-5. to five. The Pirates looking for a double play. They walk to Sensei. Weaver unleashes his second left-hand, batch, uh, left-hand bench weapon, Terry Crowley, who rewards Earl with a double to right field, driving in two and putting the O's on top 7-6. to six. They would tack on two more runs in the eighth, putting them up 9-6. to six. Rookies pitcher Tim Stoddard, who Earl uh, let hit in the eighth, who actually got a hit and scored a run, would also pitch three scoreless innings out of the bully that day, and he shut down the Pirates' hopes of evening up the series at two apiece. If you're a Pirates fan right now, you're like, ah. I know. Your heart's just like, it's dropped, and it's... And brother, if you're an Orioles fan, you got to be thinking, man, this shit should be over in four games, really. I mean, they came back in game two. uh, Tanner with the the good move down there, uh, bringing in uh, uh, Manny Sanguian, you know, the great move in the ninth inning. But the Orioles probably should have won that game. But, you know, it's just unbelievable looking back on it now. Yep, yep. And if you're a fan of pitching, now get ready because these next couple games are... Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, you know, to top it off, you know, so the Orioles now have this three games to one lead, and now they've got uh, Flanagan, who goes on to win the Cy Young that year. They got Palmer and McGregor. You know what I mean? Like, surely, and two of those games are at home, so surely something's going to happen. You're going to think you can pull one of those out. You got to think that. So, uh, look, on to game five where I was amazed. The Pirates fans were not accepting the defeat yet. They were steadfast, a family, an unbreakable unit, staring at a 3-1 to deficit, and they were still as confident as it comes. Hunnigan's had the best ball club. So far, they, they, gave, they gave away the first game, and they won the second game last night. Uh, I, I thought they could have been coming back at any time. 
And Three Rivers is packed. There is no surrender in this team or in their fucking fans. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, they just won't die. There's, a, you know, I feel like the old Japanese samurai. They're supposed to accept their shame. <laughs> They're supposed to accept their shame. Get on your knees and put a knife in your belly and just end it already. I wish uh, no, I was alive, but I wish I was older during the time because this, this would have been some feat to just sit there and, and enjoy. watch it. No yeah, doubt. yeah. No doubt. I, I, I feel jealous. My dad got to watch this and, right. and, and feel feel the the, the, the passion, the passion, the happiness. Yeah, sure, of the them, moment uh, of this run they're about to make. Absolutely, thirty-seven-year-old. Uh, Jim Rooker is taking the mound against the eventual AL Cy Young pitcher that year, Mike Flanagan. And surely the O's were going to dust him off, bury the Buckos once and for all. I mean, who the who the hell is Jim Rooker? Well, Rooker had a he had been a real nice piece for the Pirates from 1973 to 1977. He had been an invaluable back of the rotation guy. He then spent the 78 and 79 season battling arm issues and the decline that come with those kind of issues. In fact, Rooker had missed eight weeks due to injury uh, during the during the 1979 season with Pittsburgh, and his record was four and seven with a 4.60 ERA. He was proving to be invaluable out of the bully during the postseason, but now Tanner's giving him the ball to start the game. And Rooker would respond with four innings of no-hit ball and only one run allowed after five. Flanagan, on the other hand, he was looking just as masterful until the sixth with the game title one, Mad Dog Madlock again hits a clutch RBI single to put the Berg on top to stay at 2-1. to one. So, with the Orioles now up three games to two, the series goes back to Baltimore for game six. The pitching matchup is Orioles Hall of Famer Jim Palmer versus John Candelaria, who is nursing sore ribs right now. And the game was a pitching gem as both sides were matching zeros through six. And the top of the seventh, Moreno leads off with a single. Tim Foley hits what looks like a double play. But there's confusion in the Orioles' infield, and everyone is safe. The Cobra then hits a vicious grounder that eats Dower up at second base, and he goes into the outfield, scoring Moreno and breaking the 0-0 deadlock. The Bucks would push another run over and take a 2-0 lead. In the eighth, Garner at second, on at third. Bill Robinson drives in Ott with a sack fly, and Moreno, with his seventh hit in the past four games, drives in Garner, and the 4-0 lead is insurmountable as Tacoby comes in and breaks his foot off in the O's ass, whose offense is now ice cold. The series is now tied 3-3 and a winner-take-all Game 7 in Baltimore. The We Are Family Pirates have done what they did that whole 1979 season. Find ways to win. The momentum had clearly shifted, and now... The Orioles were on their heels. 
with President Jimmy Carter in attendance. Memorial Stadium was literally quivering from the noise inside of her as Jim Bibby was set to take on Scott McGregor for all the glory. In the third, Dower hits a solo shot for the Orioles. The first run for the floundering offense had scored in the last 16 innings. But again, Pittsburgh's bully. It's just too dominant for Baltimore. This time, it's former Oriole Grant Jackson shutting down the birds for two and two-thirds innings in relief. And in the top of the six, with Bill Robinson on first, the leader of the family, Pop Stargell. He brought it all to fruition with a two-run blast into the Pirates' bullpen beyond the right-field wall as Memorial Stadium became quieter than a funeral for a head of state. Pops would touch home and run into the dugout where his family of brothers were waiting with smiling faces. And that was the home run that we played in the beginning of the show. Pops hitting that home run in the sixth inning. And one of the images of that moment that I will always hold is my favorite childhood Oriole player, Kenny Singleton climbing the wall, trying to bring that ball back into the stadium. And I once asked Mr. Singleton, what was he thinking as he watched that ball fly off a pop's bat? And this is what he told me. It was a real team that I ever saw. And it's absolutely heartbreaking to this day. And it's still in my mind's eye. I see us on three games one. It comes out of game seven in Memorial Stadium. Pops hits the breaking ball up with the cracker. And I see you climbing the wall. I still see this in my mind. What, what are you thinking when that ball's off the bat of Willie Sturgeon? What's going to be moved? Well, first of all, when Sturgeon hits the ball, it usually goes a long way. So, <laughs> number one. Yes. But I think the video that you see of that uh, particular play um, doesn't really do justice to how close I came to catching the ball. And if uh, the, the guys in the Pirates' bullpens were right behind me, and they said, people don't realize how close you came to making that play. Oh, my and I, I said that, that uh, it, it wasn't more than a foot or two out of my reach. And uh, it was almost as if Sergeant didn't really hit it the, the way he can, because it would have been no doubt. Right. But uh, the, the fact is that uh, uh, that really hurt after being up three games to one. Uh, I remember sitting in the clubhouse in Memorial Stadium after we lost the World Series. I, I was just, in a way, I was exhausted. You know, you, you don't sleep much during the World Series. And um, and I, I can recall just saying to myself, oh, I hope we get another chance somewhere down the line. Unfortunately for Singleton, he would get another chance as the Orioles would avenge this disaster in 1983. But as far as this series is concerned, that was pretty much ding-ding. Game, set, match. The Orioles had a shot in the eighth to do damage with the bases loaded. But Eddie Murray, who was mired in an O for his last 20 slump, uh, prior to that game, flew out deep to Parker and right field to end the only real threat that the Orioles had left. The Pirates would score two runs in the ninth, putting them up 4-1, to one, and with Teak on the mound in the ninth, the Orioles could do nothing but become a part of history as they were only the fifth team at the time to lose a World Series after being up three games to one. The We Are Family 1979 Parrot, uh, Pirates were 
as an exciting group of champions as this game has ever seen. And I'm telling you right now, it was not a fluke. Some of the World Series numbers from that year are amazing. Dave Parker and Tim Foley each had 10 hits in the series. 323 was the highest team batting average in World Series history for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Omar Moreno had 11 hits. Bill Madlock murdered the Orioles. He hit them at a 375 clip. Garner was even better. He batted 500 with 12 hits, which is one hit shy of the record. But it was Pops. It was always Pops, the patriarch of the Pirates family, and like Clemente, eight years earlier, Stargell had solidified his pirate legacy, brought the chip back to the Berg, and gleefully at the expense of the Baltimore Orioles once again. And I think this is where we're going to wrap it up. What do you think, Mike? Do you like that? Um, I mean, I, I I don't mind talking more about Pirates beating Orioles. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's kind of kind of funny. I don't you don't get to I don't get to talk about the Pirates winning too much too much lately, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, talking about this 1979 team and and um, you know, I did talk to my dad briefly, and he, it just it's still clear in his mind what's happening 66 years old and he just remembers back to when those teams was fantastic in the 70s and like I said I didn't get to enjoy any of that type of era yeah. uh, the best I've had was in 2013 well like it could be coming man I mean yeah. the Pirates have some really good young talent on the way they're they're probably a year behind what the Orioles are doing right now, so we'll see. I, I think the Pirates, I think their future could be pretty good. It always comes down to will ownership spend the money to keep guys there. But, uh, look, if you want, you know, there's a lot of cool things out there. If you want to know more about the We Are Family Pirates, I know that the MLB Network did a piece on them a few years ago. It's narrated by Public Enemies rapper Chuck D. I'm a huge mark for Chuck, so I found it quite interesting. There's Vince Scully giving a highlight account on YouTube that I found useful in my research and plenty of other stuff. I also got that one-on-one interview with Ken Singleton, and we talk a lot about that 1979 World Series. That's on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network YouTube page. And as an Oriole fan growing up, it was very hard to live through. Fortunately, in 83, we got our revenge versus Filthy, and... You know, life goes on, man. You know, it, it was it was a tough series for me to swallow. I mean, eight-year-old kid, I, I cried for like a week. I'm not even going to lie to you. But I want to thank Mike for stopping by. Hope you had fun, brother. I did. It was great being here, finally. Finally got to be on the show. I, this has been 11 years coming. There you go. Inside the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, rate, share, and review. Thank you all for stopping by. And the train rolls on. Next week, I'm going to finally sit down and tell the story of the one and only Branch Rickey. The greatest GM who ever lived. And if you disagree with me, I'll fight you. But look. That's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the deck.